0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, from HouseStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about advertisements.
1: Yeah, so we've already talked a lot about women in the advertising world. And of course, on Sminty, we've talked a lot about the actual women and sexism that are in ads. But today we are zeroing in on basically advertising's co-opting of feminism.
0: Yeah, I thought about this, Caroline, the other day when I was watching something on YouTube. It was not a Stuff Mom Never Told You (laughs) video. I promise I don't watch videos of myself in my free time. Uh, But there was a pre-roll secret deodorant ad, Mm -hmm. and usually... I click through them, but I did not with this one because I wanted to see what happened. I wanted to see if they were doing what I thought they were going to do, and they did. So the campaign is something along the lines of the secret stress test.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: they I've seen a few of these commercials where they all have, oh, a woman who's in some kind of stressful situation, but she's got secret deodorant, so it's okay. So in this one, it's, a guy and a girl at a dinner, it's a busy restaurant and they're talking and you can see the woman start to get nervous mm. and oh my god, she's proposing. She is proposing to a huh. man. And I was like, "Oh ho ho, secret deodorant. <laughs> well done with that empowering." Uh-huh. Because you know, Liberated women. Don't we millennial ladies love that? We'll buy that
1: deodorant. We will. I know. And it's interesting to watch how advertising, of course, is going to follow the money. And, uh, historically, if they see they, you know, advertising, if they see an opportunity to be able to sell more stuff, they're, make more money. They're going to do it. And so as women have gained more rights, more of a voice in society, Um and have actually stepped up and said, no, this portrayal of women is not okay. We are, you know, three-dimensional, <laughs> hot-blooded human people. We, you know, deserve equal rights. We can propose if we want to. That's right. And throw like a girl and... Have hair that's not bossy. I think that was the point of that ad, right? That the Pantene Pro V Shine right. Strong campaign. That your hair is not bossy, nor is it apologizing too much, right? Exactly. Um, so naturally, you know the way that society goes. So will advertising a little slower, <laughs> and maybe not commit quite as hard. But yeah, I mean they'd be foolish to to not follow. The way that culture's going. Absolutely. And probably the
0: most famous example of this that we'll get into later in the show is the 1970s Virginia Slims campaign of You've Come a Long Way Baby. Mm-hmm. And in most articles you'll read about empowertizing, which is also referred to as femvertising within the industry. That's cited as the first, but no, 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 my friends. The history of brands and companies catering to female consumers with feministy, liberated ish taglines mm-hmm. is extensive. I mean, yeah. it really has been as old as the ad industry. right. and And the question that we're going to look at really today, after we sort through how all of this has come about, how how we have now gotten to the point to where women on deodorant commercials are proposing to their boyfriend is whether, as some claim it is, this is good that femvertising, as advocates of it call it, is a sign that our society has progressed. And these are the brands that we should be supporting. It's great, right, that feminism is in our commercials.
1: Right. And this is the same question, basically, that we grappled with in our feminist fashion episode where we talked about how you had brands like Chanel um, and others who are parading feminist slogans and signs even and staging fake feminist protests on the runway. And there was even one recently. Was it Dior? It that was had, Dior. Yeah, that had quote-unquote feminist T-shirts with just... I mean, it was the same, you know average white models sporting feminist slogans on T-shirts that you and I can't afford. Um, but, you know, we we had to grapple with that in that episode, too, of, okay, raising awareness and bringing attention to issues of feminism, positive, um, but not taking it a step further and actually participating in any sort of meaningful conversation Not helpful. Well, it's just a fundamental question, too,
0: of whether feminism and capitalism can kind of coexist in that way, whether it's okay for, you know, these commercials to be not only selling a brand, but also allegedly trying to sell us an idea of
1: cultural change. I mean, it's the thing I ask myself all the time. Can feminism exist outside of my coven? I have no idea. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's
0: true. It's true. Uh so let's first talk about this whole concept of empowering. This is something that was coined by a former stuff mom never told you guest Andy Ziesler who is also a founder of bitch magazine and she also recently wrote a book that talks a lot about this called We Were Feminists Once and she came up with the fabulous portmanteau of empowering to refer to the use of feministy, choose your consumer choice messaging to just sell things to women. And she doesn't mean this in a flattering way.
1: No. And nor does she mean that there's anything inherently wrong in buying a t shirt or a tote bag or whatever that has some sort of feminist slogan on it. But she does take issue with the concept that I just mentioned of. Okay, well, you're going to walk the walk, but are you going to talk the talk? Or is it the other way? You're talking the talk, but are you going to walk the walk? Yes. Feminism. Exactly. <laughs> there was actually a terrific parody,
0: too, of this advertising trend of empower that was uh, made in 2015 by a Canadian agency called John Saint. <laughs> and there, <laughs> it's a spoof of... This ad agency that's specifically made to like sell stuff to women via empowertizing. And there's a poster in this fake agency uh, that says, if she's crying, she's buying. And to me, that sums up empowertizing.
1: Yeah, that's right. Whether it's like trying to sell yogurt to women who are worried about their weight or selling body wash to women who are worried about their weight, it just seems like. We've got a lot of advertising out there that's trying to tell women what a lot of us already know, which is that it's OK to accept yourself. Yeah. Well, and, and also in the in the words of it,
0: though, to put it a little more harshly, the message of that St. John's spoof was that really at the core of all of this is, quote, fastening on something women hate about themselves, emphasizing that self-doubt. And then presenting this brand as a
1: philanthropic champion of women's healing and self-actualization. Right. Which is exactly what so many media and cultural critics have brought up about a lot of the beauty brands that are getting in on this so-called empowering these days of like, well, you've sold us how we have to be hairless and smooth, like, critters, you know, that roam through the woods only eating fruit, nuts and berries um, so that we can be super skinny in addition to, you know, not having any smell or hair at all. Um And now you're turning around and saying, oh, no, but the way that you are is OK. So buy our soap. Right. Or buy our lipstick or whatever it is. And
0: empowering isn't to be confused with. Femvertising, which was a term as far as I could tell that was coined by she knows media and Femvertising casts all of this in the more glass half full perspective that these kinds of feel good ads are legitimately empowering female consumers because they are challenging negative gender stereotypes. So some examples of this would, of course, be The Dove Campaign for Real Beauty, which has now been renamed to the Dove Movement for Self-Esteem, which kind of started it all, at least in terms of our modern post-new millennium era of femvertising.
1: Yeah, I hadn't realized that that goes back to 2004, that campaign using non-model women. I'm not going to say real women, because that is obviously can be insulting and condescending, too. Models, for instance. I don't know.
0: Well, and I remember when those ads first
1: came out
0: and it was a refreshing change. Absolutely. Oh, sure, yeah. But then I also remember as the campaign went on that feminist outlets such as bitch media started to become increasingly wary of what Dove was really selling. And I think the turning point for this was uh, the commercial they made where women came in and described themselves to a forensic sketch artist. And then a friend of theirs came in and described, you know, the woman to a forensic sketch artist. And surprise, the way we describe ourselves is that we're all, like, haggard (laughs) and withered, just awful deflated basketballs, essentially. (laughs) Whereas our friends describe us as basically looking like Heidi Klum women, your self-esteem is so bad. And so on the one hand, it's like, yeah, this like their, their body diversity is great. It has absolutely contributed to this broader movement for body positivity. But on the other hand, like what's up with just really insisting that no woman has a shred of self-esteem whatsoever?
1: Yeah, it's almost like they overcorrected. Yeah, a yeah. little bit. Yeah, went, went a little too far. Um, and you know we already mentioned the the Pantene Shine Strong ad that actually got the stamp of approval from Lena and Cheryl Sandberg. Um, but basically in that ad, did they even mention shampoo? Until they the did. very
0: end. Yeah, and they did the the classic Pantene hair
1: slow-mo. Yeah, it looks wave. like Lego hair cuz it's like it doesn't come apart. Right. Now. Right. Um I don't know how they do that. Like is there an invisible hairnet holding all of that hair together? I need one of those. I need one too. See the empowering is working on us already. Uh, not for their shampoo unfortunately, but for their invisible hairnet. <laughs> Um, That could be helpful in the food service industry, I guess. Absolutely. If you're sick of wearing hair nuts, well, here's an invisible one <laughs> by Pantene.
0: Well, and that commercial started off saying, why do women apologize so much? And it did... Tap into the zeitgeisty conversation happening around the time with Cheryl Sandberg and lean in about, you know, women not apologizing for themselves all the time and not undercutting their own authority and us recognizing that bossy is a very negatively gendered term. All things that are terrific. But again, it's like, did we need a Procter and Gamble product? To tell us this.
1: Right. I remember seeing a magazine ad for, you know, don't call her bossy or whatever. She's the boss. And I I took a picture and posted it to our Sminty Instagram. And I just asked... Listeners, I asked our followers, like, what do you think about this? You know, I, you know, and it was about evenly split, I would say, between women who were just saying, oh, this is obnoxious. You know, stop trying to sell us shampoo with the feminist movement. Stop trying to take our empowerment initiatives and sell us something back. The other half of the people who responded were pretty adamant in saying, if it's got to be something, it might as well be feminist.
0: Absolutely. And and I think that there are completely valid arguments mm-hmm. on both sides of it. And to maybe help us make a little more sense of this and contextualize where all of this came from. Let's look at a little bit of history, because I, I, what I at least didn't realize before this was how pretty much as soon as women got into the advertising industry, which was from the get go, mm-hmm they tried to infuse a lot of early advertisements with more of that uh, turn-of-the-century, suffragist, new-woman ethos.
1: Well, right, and that has a lot to do with the whole separate sphere thing. Men were already going out into the world, into the workforce, making a paycheck, making money. Women were at home. And so in order to kind of open up The economy, essentially, they had to create the female consumer. I mean, our economy had to have this female consumer and treat her as if part of her wifely household duties was to do all of the shopping. And so advertising was certainly pitching to this new woman who, even if she didn't work outside the home, was still expected to leave the house and consume, 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 shop, shop, shop. And so even if the new woman, so to speak, wasn't even in the majority necessarily, she was a really strong and important pop culture figure that proved really powerful to sort of advertise to and around. Yeah, I mean, and she also existed completely
0: detached from the home as well. This is really the first generation of women who could potentially leave the house without any intent of marriage, go to college, if they, you know, typically if they were white and could afford it, and then get into a profession like advertising. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is coming from uh, Ad Age's encyclopedia. And I got to give a shout out to Ad Age. They have been covering women in advertising for quite some time now. Um, and if you want more background on the ins and outs of women in the advertising industry, I highly recommend you going back and listening to our two-parter on that, Mad Women Parts 1 and 2, in which we talk about how in the 1910s and 20s, There was this feminist badass named Helen Lansdowne Razor, and she was one of the first ad women. She worked at an agency called JWT, and her claim to fame was creating a women's editorial department with the goal of cornering gender based marketing, which really didn't exist Before then, because obviously, like, marketing in general was still kind of in its infancy in the way that we think of it today. But Razor recognized that the growth of advertising depended on female consumers and that you got to reach those women. And Razor was pumped about this because she was one of those new women out, like, making a living for herself.
1: Yeah, so... Under her guidance, they end up hiring a team of white, middle and upper class, college educated women to serve as copywriters. Because who better to pitch products to women than women themselves? Makes women, sense. women get women. You know, y- you need that dishwashing detergent that's easy on your hands, don't you, ladies? Uh, and <laughs> they did primarily work on things like soap. Uh, food products, drugs, uh, toiletries, basically things that were... A considered part of that home sphere. Like, here's your responsibility. You better be buying all of this soap and all of these little medical tinctures. Well, and even just your
0: personal upkeep, whether mm-hmm. you even just had like a, a small apartment to yourself, a woman
1: still had to put on a face. And we've all seen, if you've ever been on Pinterest, those ads from a couple decades later, I believe they're from maybe the 30s, but definitely the 40s for Lysol douches oh. of like ladies, 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 your man is going to leave you if if you have an ounce of smell on you anywhere. Uh, so yeah, it, it,
0: Lysol was a real two for one back in the day where it'll <laughs> clean your floors and your vagina. Your insides. And by the way, don't put Lysol on your vagina. It's not good for you in case you were wondering.
1: Yeah, no, we're not promoting. <laughs>
0: um, but here's the thing. Those women, who Razor brought in also had kind of activist backgrounds. And that was one reason why some of them were even hired, because these women were all active in the suffrage movement. They were all coming with experience from organizations, including the League of Women Voters, the Consumers League, the National Women's Party. And all of that amounted to, in Razor's eyes, as someone hiring, that was publicity experience. Like these women knew how to run a campaign, get people's attention, And that experience was crucial because, especially in hindsight, this group of women was considered the most influential in advertising at the time because they were literally shaping Mm -hmm. this earliest construct of what a female consumer looks like and also defining
1: normative femininity. Yes, things that haunt us even still. Part of the reason we have a podcast and try to contextualize and dismantle some of these things. Advertising is powerful. It is so powerful. I mean, because really, what the, before they could sell women stuff,
0: they had to even teach women how to consume it. Mm-hmm. So you remember, again, like if you go on Pinterest, all of those vintage advertisements had so much copy. Yes. Because they were having to say, listen ladies, just between us friends, here's your problem. You don't know that you have a problem yet, but I'm going to tell you you've got a problem and this is how it can make it better. But there was this whole catch 22 with this because a lot of these women who were these earliest copywriters, you know, they they were all for a liberated woman. And so they're like, well, we don't want to, You know, box up women into just one size fits all. Not everyone is just a a housewife, you know, chained to her kids and her husband. But at the same time, in, in doing that, they just divvied up
1: women into a bunch of smaller stereotypes. Like the socialite or the working woman. Yeah. So in other words, you can't be a mix of these things like we have to in order to. And I and I get that. If you are trying to market a product to somebody, you've got to know on your on your chalkboard. You've got to be able to write who it is that you're marketing to so you can tailor that campaign. And I get it. Unfortunately, it's. You know, who knew boxes were limiting? <laughs> well, and this is also
0: the first time we kind of come to that crossroads of can our feminism and our capitalism coexist? How can we make all of that work together? Um And one prominent method that you see come up in the 1920s when you start having more of these women's editorial departments coming up is. The personal approach that ads took where selling a brand at the time was more about selling the potential of leisure, labor saving goods, you know, how it was going to really improve your life. Not so much the quality, but just the thing of like, listen, between us gals, (sighs) this is what you need to be doing. It's the same thing that we do these days with influencers on Instagram and Snapchat and all of the the makeup tutorials that I've watched on YouTube and not been able to recreate at all.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and so before we ever had Virginia Slims telling us how far we had come as women, you had a totally separate cigarette campaign that was telling women how far... They could go if only they picked up a torch of freedom.
0: Oh, yeah. Suffrage smells like stale cigarette smoke.
1: <laughs> Who knew? Who knew?
0: Uh, a lot of listeners may have heard of this before because we have talked about it on the podcast. But uh, Easter Sunday, 1929, was a big day in advertising. This is when Edward Bernays, who's considered the father of public relations, launched the Torches of Freedom campaign on behalf of American tobacco. And what went down was Bernays hired this group of uber stylish women to walk in the New York Easter parade, because that used to be a big deal. And
1: these very stylish ladies smoked cigarettes in public. Oh, my gosh. Well, but the thing is, just like when you see a Dior or a Chanel co-opting feminist slogans for their fashion today, or just like when you see, you know, always doing it's like a girl campaign. They're not just pulling this out of thin air. They're not inventing the movements that they are trying to capitalize on. Bernays looked around and was just savvy enough to notice that this is all part of popular modern culture. Anyway, we've you know, women have won the vote. Um, You've got this new woman, these flappers who are already stepping outside the home. They're dating. They're going in car rides with boys. And they're already a lot of them probably lighting up, having a cocktail. Um, And so what great inspiration for this whole PR campaign for cigarettes?
0: Well, and I didn't
1: realize
0: that Bernays had already masterminded for Lucky Strikes. A campaign of reach for a lucky instead of a sweet.
1: So, already capitalizing on women's weight insecurity. Cool. Yeah. yeah. You know, who needs a, a lunch when you could just have a pack of cigarettes?
0: <laughs> um, but there was, of course, a ton of media coverage. Of the Easter parade, that's part of why it was such a success. The New York Times, you know, was covering the fact that these women were smoking in public. And there was a quote, I think, from the New York Times, uh, from one of Bernays' smoking ladies uh, who said, quote, I hope we've started something. And that these torches of freedom will smash the discriminatory taboo on <laughs> cigarettes for women. And that our sex will go on breaking down all discriminations. What is it with tobacco companies and feminism? Like, ha- throughout the 20th century, like, that's been our big breakthrough. Like, two of the most successful uh, empowering campaigns of the past 100 years have just been selling women cigarettes. And we've lit up.
1: Yeah. No, I I think when you latch on to a powerful movement at a time when there are a lot of people who want to break away from the past, I mean, I think it was part of this Bernays campaign, right, where they featured ads showing... Women who, you know, obviously weren't real, these were fictional stories, but women who were like having to sneak to the basement to smoke a cigarette and were being told by their parents or their husbands that they had to like go to their rooms as punishment for smoking and Mm -hmm. it was basically like, ladies, you don't want to be told what to do do you? Well, no, you should light a cigarette and be proud of it. And I'm sure at that cultural moment as today, as with the Virginia Slims campaign, there were a lot of women who were like, yeah, I do want to be able to do whatever I want, even if it includes lighting a cigarette that's not good for me. But also, I mean, aside from packaging and branding and like flavors, I guess, like How do you even really distinguish cigarettes from each other? And so, like, all of these cigarette companies are having to mastermind all of these different ad campaigns to open up new consumer channels. So what then gets us from 1929s, Torches
0: of Freedom, to the 1970s, You've Come a Long Way, Baby, is when the awakening begins in the 1960s and 70s, because, of course, before feminists can come around and respond to sexism in ads, we have to have the ad industry like first, like start getting really, really sexist. Um So by the time the feminine mystique comes out in 1963, Oh, man. I mean, especially like we're in post-World War II, domesticity is queen. Like ads are all about really boxing women into a, a housewife shaped uh, box. That's not right. Um, <laughs> Sounds
1: like a coffin. <laughs> oh, God.
0: <laughs> well, you know who'd agree with that, Caroline? Betty Friedan. <laughs> Tell me more. So she publishes The Feminine Mystique. In 1963, and in it, she really takes advertising to task and for good reason. The same reason that even today, if you want to get attention on your blog post, make it about some prominent company creating some kind of blindly sexist ad. Mm -hmm. The first one that comes to mind of late is uh, one from Gap Kids, where the classic t-shirt for girls said something princessy and t-shirt for boys had Einstein on it and yeah. misspelled his name. I think. Oh, <laughs> right. Great. Which is is kind that of irony? I think it is <laughs> a little bit. Um, but in The Feminine Mystique, Ferdinand writes, if advertisements are not responsible for sending women home... They're surely
1: responsible for keeping them there. Yeah, well, be, yes, and this is because you see all sorts of ads that are not only for things like Lysol and, and beauty products and whatever, but you also have the explosion of ads that are targeting both men and women for like the new vacuum cleaner or the new oven range or stove of like, Oh, girl, there was one. I think it, I think this one was from like the 40s or 50s. It was basically like, oh, girl, I have all this free time now that I've got a new stove. And I'm sure that was the copy for it. Was that a Valium ad? Yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> or speed. Yeah. Housewife on trucker speed. I just get so much cleaning. done. <laughs> I'm clean by nine, nine a.m. The house is spotless.
0: <laughs> um, and a lot of women took to this. Obviously, there's there's a reason why we still talk in so many episodes about this book that came out in 1963. A lot of upper middle class white women in particular were like, oh, my God, this is this is what I have been noticing myself I thought I was the only one so it kicks off the beginning of a movement of women protesting these sexist ads and of course at first the ad industry which is very heavily male at this time they balked yeah I just got a room full of Don Drapers right yeah like what I'm (laughs) gonna see you as sex objects but you did, around this time, start to have some Peggy Olsons. You have a growing number of women who are starting to, bit by bit, promoting change from the inside, like Helen Lansdowne Razor mm-hmm. hoped to do, um, even though it wasn't change, it was just, you know, building the foundation back in the 1910s and 20s. And on the flip side of that, what really convinced the Don Draper's in the room that maybe they should pay more attention and maybe make their ads less sexist is the fact that the women who were buying the feminine mystique and who were suddenly side-eyeing certain ad campaigns were largely white middle-class women who had a lot, still do, of buying power. And so a few years later, we start to see pocketbook protests.
1: Right. And yeah, so... That makes sense then why advertisers would suddenly be paying attention to all these silly feminists because, oh wait, are they willing to spend their money elsewhere? Yeah, we might choose another brand of douche <laughs> that's not Lysol.
0: People who don't know the background Lysol and douche are very confused right now.
1: Just go on Pinterest. Or watch Boardwalk Empire. Oh, is there a scene with her? Lots Lysol of them. Dushing? Well, to prevent pregnancy. Oh. That's also, Not a thing.
0: Right. We also have an episode on douching in case you're unclear on that as well.
1: Yeah. But all right. So if we travel to 1969, there is a feminist advertising protest in front of the New York City Macy's over this Mattel ad that was featured in Life magazine, which used the ad copy. Little girls dream about being a ballerina or a young fashion model while boys were born to build, learn, and find science fun. Which, hello, 1969, we are fighting the same fight still. Yeah, what was the gap, the gap kids example I just gave? It's the same kind of thing of the pink and blue, boys are smart, and girls are pretty. Well, Girls Life and Boys Life magazine. Oh yes. That, that scandal just happened. Like, how in the world I mean, are people just sticking their heads in the sand and not realizing, like, hey, let's not only pitch pink and princesses to girls and only pitch blue and, like, toy trucks to boys? Exactly. But then, of course, not to get ahead of ourselves, but then you'd see,
0: say, a target making the move to make their toy aisles gender neutral, which you could argue is a bit of empowertizing. Are they just, you know, capitalizing literally and figuratively on our desire to bust kids out of these pink and blue boxes and we're just buying
1: into it all. I mean... Well, it is funny, though, when you go to Target, side note, because they didn't change anything else about the toy section. They just took the sign off. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, so, like, all of the pink stuff is still grouped together in the pink ghetto and all of, like, the, you know, Star Wars toys are still in another aisle by themselves. They're in the the mechanic aisle. (laughs) Yeah, 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 it's weird. Um, But Mattel was far from
0: the only product and campaign that feminists at this time were protesting. They also held boycotts against Silva Thin's cigarettes because its ad campaigns revolved around taglines like cigarettes are like women. The best ones are thin and rich. Okay. Sounds like a Donald Trump quote. (laughs) Well, and then when the Silva Thins came out with their hundreds, which are you know longer thinner versions of typical cigarettes, their uh, that tagline was, "I'm a thinner, long and lean. That's the way I like things. I like my figure slim, my men trim, and my cigarettes thin." And it features. A brunette, (laughs) 70s fantastic
1: model. Who is indeed thin. She is thin. Yeah, but I mean, like, that ad copy is just not very good. Aside from everything else about, like, trying to fat shame me or convince me to start smoking, like... Right, right. Right, right. More inspired ad copy. Well, then we got to talk about pristine
0: because pristine, speaking of douches, (laughs) pristine was a feminine hygiene deodorant. I think it was actually like an like an aerosol spray that you would spray all around your vulva.
1: I just stick one of those pine tree air fresheners for your car up in there, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't bother with a spray. It's not going to last.
0: Or like a Glade air freshener. (laughs) Um, So feminists, we're, we're not only concerned over, it's just the idea that, our vaginas needed to smell like something. They don't. Mountain fresh. Yes. They, they were also skeptical of the safety of this product. And in response, uh, the pristine manufacturer, Warner Lambert said pristine is for femininity, freshness and women's
1: confidence. How can anyone be against that? Which I kind of feel like if you're looking at empowertizing and femvertizing from the glass half empty perspective, that quote might as well stand for any, any product. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean... We're promoting
0: confidence. Don't you want confidence? And femininity and freshness. Mm. And it wasn't just... Picketing outside of, say, the New York Macy's store. You also have more radical groups like the Red Stockings, who in 1969 started bombing Subway ads with stickers that said this ad insults women or this ad oppresses women.
1: I we all need those stickers in our purses or our knapsacks or our fanny packs, um, whatever you carry your belongings in. Um because I feel like I've even seen stickers like that, or at least pictures of them.
0: Yeah, uh, I forget which group did it or if it was a specific group, but a couple years ago, someone started doing that in New York subways again, and mm-hmm. it got a bunch of uh, online attention. So that brings us up to the 1970s when the ad industry responds with what some people call commodity feminism, which is another way of describing empowertizing, shifting focus essentially to say, okay, maybe, maybe... These women have a point. And this is when Advertising Age magazine starts covering this. So, I mean, this does become like an industry wide conversation.
1: Yeah. And these conversations are being led by women who are in the trenches in the ad industry working to, yes, sell their products and, yes, be good advertisers for their clients and those products, but also working to make Less maybe overtly sexist ads uh, motivated by both profits and politics. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to see how
0: they went about this, because, of course, these were still businesswomen. You know, mm-hmm. they they were ambitious. They were career driven. And at the same time, they didn't want to promote sexist imagery. So you have people like ad executive Franchelli Cadwell, who took out a two-page spread in Advertising Age magazine, announcing the lady of the house is dead. No force has demeaned women more than advertising. And she goes on to argue that brands that ignore this fact will suffer financially. In other words, hey, talking down to women is bad business. Do you want to lose money? No. Okay. well, get with the program then. So in the early 1970s, you also start to see places like BBDO, a prominent ad agency still conducting focus groups among feminists to find out exactly what they hate about
1: ads and their major gripe. Was the reinforcement of domesticity all of those efficient stoves and vacuum cleaners? Um, And when we come right back from a quick break, we're going to talk about uh, feminist perfume getting in on the act. I don't know. Maybe it's used to clear the air after you smoked all those feminist cigarettes. I don't know. But we will be right back.
0: Caroline, my favorite chapter of our femvertizing history comes in 1973 when Revlon debuts a feminist perfume.
1: Oh, good. Yes. So this perfume is... Protesting for women's rights. Yep. The the perfume is out on the streets with a sign. Yep. Picketing sexist businesses. The
0: perfume is actually like paving the way. This is the same year as Roe v. Wade. You know, and it was actually because of this perfume. <laughs> you know, because a bunch of lawyers wore it in the courtroom, and the judges were like, "It's fine, legalize abortion. Let's get out of here. It smells disgusting." <laughs> Um but getting a headache. On a serious note, Revlon comes out with this perfume called Charlie. And listeners, if you have a chance, go on YouTube and look up one of these Charlie commercials. In fact, watch them all. Because Charlie was not only a perfume, she was a persona. And Charlie was this pants suited worldly woman who was always out in the town. She was dazzling gentleman. She wore a sequin blazer in one, which, you know, if you can make a sequin blazer work, then you must be liberated somehow. And within a year, it was America's best selling drugstore fragrance. People were all about
1: this liberated Charlie. And her perfume. Yeah, there was even an ad for Charlie. She, the woman, is not wearing a pantsuit. She was wearing a power suit. But it's a skirt suit, and it's this reversal of these stereotypical gender roles. Or reversal of sexism, almost, because the woman is grabbing the man's butt, and it's like she's very Charlie. Is the copy? Oh, can we can we make that a term? Oh yeah, so Charlie. Women who get in trouble for sexual harassment in the workplace. Oh yeah, never mind. Maybe maybe it's not such a. She's a Charlie. Such a cool term.
0: Yeah, that was actually that. That's one thing too. Is that um the ad industry and also feminists at the time didn't fully understand how just flipping the sexism script isn't necessarily feminism. Like no, liberation is not women be able being able to grope men.
1: Yeah, at their leisure. It's no one groping anyone at all. All of us being treated as human people with rights and it, responsibilities. There's no non-consensual groping in feminism. No, but I mean, Charlie was hardly the only quote-unquote feminist empowering perfume. You also had Jean Nate, which I gotta tell you, like, I just turned the ad off. I like pulled it up and she's splashing. This was me projecting, right? Okay. So she's like splashing. Jean all over herself and I turned it off because I just kept thinking like if that woman was my coworker and she was standing next to me, I would have to leave work with a migraine because she would just reek of Jean Well, and it was called the all over
0: fragrance, which is probably why she was literally putting it all over herself. And the tagline was take charge of your life. And the Jean Nate commercial that we watched features another blonde woman who is just dousing herself in Gina Tay and suddenly she is transported to being a jockey. Right. And she wins the race. And, you know, the voice, the voiceover comes on in the commercial saying, is she a Gina Tay kind of woman? Don't buy her perfume. Buy her Gina Tay. And then. The final cut is just this disembodied hand, presumably covered in Gina Tay, all over fragrance, just slapping <laughs> the body, this like naked woman's body with Gina Tay, which just,
1: just did not seem like a pleasant way to apply fragrance. But I like that out of all of the things we can imagine for women in terms of equality and like, women, you need to break the glass ceiling. Gina Tay is like, ah. How about a jockey? Women can be small. Women love horses. Uh, But that is not to be
0: outdone by Anjali, who came out around the same time, also selling perfume via empowerment. They used this jingle that included the line... I can bring home the bacon,
1: fry it up in a pan and never let you forget that you're a man. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of like they went off the cliff there. Yeah. They're promising like, oh, she's a working woman. And the ad, it talks about being the eight hour perfume for the 24 hour woman, which does just sound exhausting. Um, But it shows flashes of her in a power suit. And then she's at home and then she's what she's in pajamas, too. Or there's there's several outfit changes.
0: Being a 24 hour woman requires a lot of clothes.
1: Yeah. You need a lot of wardrobe
0: changes and a
1: lot of perfume.
0: So while all of this feminist perfume is being sold to us, In 1975, the National Advertising Review Board releases an advertising and women report highlighting sexist stereotyping and offering guidelines for better representation. Terrific. Mm -hmm. But to give an idea of where we're at at this point, some of the checklist questions that they provide in the report for advertisers to kind of, you know, check themselves before they wreck themselves include, do my ads portray women as more neurotic than men? And do my ads portray women actually driving cars? I mean, we're
1: at a very 101 point here in the mid 70s. Yeah, like maybe we've established that women are people like maybe. But yeah, have you thought about having a woman driving a car or being not neurotic? Like, maybe we're still at the hysterical uterus stage.
0: Well, and this is when we see the Helen Lansdowne Razor era of the new woman all over again, because it wasn't Razor, but another prominent woman in her women's editorial department at JWT who was openly... um critical of the stereotype back then of the housewife as being particularly neurotic and saying, you know what, we need to portray women as being intelligent and discriminating. Um, and so hopping to the seventies, we see a similar thing going on where Madison Avenue starts to refashion the new woman, so to speak, um, and co-opting the feminist movements language, um, But as Steve Craig, who has researched this, talks about in a paper that we read, even before that National Advertising Review Board report, ads, quote, began to appear that not only avoided objectionable images, but even attempted to curry favor with women who had become sensitized to liberation issues.
1: (laughs) I just, I like that language. I mean, it's a very good point, but I like the language. It's funny of like, I imagine it will be like, ooh, ooh, ah, liberation issues. Um, and so. What do we see if history is indeed in the ad industry repeating itself? That means we've got to talk about cigarettes again. It's been about five minutes. It's time to talk about cigs again. Torches of freedom. Almost 50
0: years later, after the Easter parade with all those attractive white women lighting up in 1978, the Leo Burnett Agency creates the You've Come a Long Way Baby campaign for Philip Morris, because they're like, hey, we need to sell some cigarettes to women. We've got these Virginia Slims. Let's make it happen. And it's a huge success. Um, It also, by the way, prompted the feminist retort, don't call me baby,
1: Yes, which I appreciated. Well, of course, because, I mean, they're still being demeaning to women on top of pretty much only advertising still to white, middle, and upper class women. But... Industry-wise, the bar
0: is set so low that you've come a long way, baby, really set a new standard for how you should advertise to women.
1: And, I mean, for better or worse, this ad campaign and the way that they approached talking to female consumers worked so well that Virginia Slims are still a top brand among women smokers. Oh, yeah. And
0: it also perpetuates around the same time, Advertisers and brands thinking, oh, let's just flip the sexism script, um, which I got to say, I was n- not terribly pleased to see that at the time, the National Organization for Women, of course, was very involved in protesting the sexist ads. They're a big reason why this entire movement happened, um, but they were totally down with the flipped sexism script, not necessarily flipping gender roles, but the sexism. So in the case of an American Express ad around the time you have a male model asking in the copy, isn't it time women got their own credit cards and started taking me out to dinner? So again,
1: liberation is buying a handsome man dinner. Right. And and yes. And like we said earlier, with a Charlie ad with a woman accosting the man, Equality, it's not just like empowerment is not something that one group has and then the other one doesn't. We're, we're trying for equality. And, and so that's the bone that everybody had to pick. Well, a lot of people had to pick with these gender-flipped ads, but still, like you were saying, Now was on board. A lot of the women in Now were, and at Ms. Magazine, including Gloria Steinem, were on board with some of these gender-swapped ads. Right. I mean,
0: because it's... Difficult terrain to navigate. Um And in fact, the first issue of Ms. ran what was considered a controversial ad for Coppertone, suntan lotion, which featured a slim blonde woman in a bikini with a copy that said that it helps more people get a magnificently deep, fast tan. And that doesn't sound that terrible. But at the same time, it's like, well, Ms. magazine, I mean, it was on the inside the front cover. Mm-hmm. You suddenly have this image of a, a slim woman in a bikini. And uh, as Steve Craig also points out, the magazine later ran ads for Virginia Slims, which not surprisingly prompted a negative backlash from readership. But at the end of the day, Gloria Steinem had a business to run a magazine business to run.
1: Yeah, and as uh, author Steve Craig points out, she did work to attract ads from cosmetics companies, from people like Revlon, and that was seen as sort of a negative, too, for a magazine like Ms. to be kind of singing the same tune as just about every other publication out there when it came to advertising. Right. And this, too,
0: is a conversation that we had with... Andy Ziesler from Bitch Magazine, an author of We Were Feminists Once because, you know, she started Bitch Magazine, which, like Ms. is feminist through and through. And Bitch has had a lot of challenges as a nonprofit, you know, that does not take out typical Revlon, <laughs> Virginia Slims-ish advertising, um, which can, you know, I mean, it's ugh, it's it's hard to survive as Independent media, if you aren't taking that kind of corporate cash, but dims the brakes. So when we move into the 1980s to the 2000s, as a helpful breakdown over at Women's E-News talks about, along with more women joining the workforce, the femvertising trope that you see. Becomes the superwoman. This is like the working mom with the octopus arms. The uh, how does she do it all?
1: Yeah, every stock image ever. You've got the power suit, the briefcase, the baby, the salad, the money, the credit card, the cell phone. Yeah, again, she sounds like the Angeli woman. Yes. You know, she's the twenty four hour woman,
0: <laughs> and she's on a horse. <laughs> and you know that's that's kind of going on in the background when. Femvertising first comes up in its modern iteration, really, with Dove. And the Dove campaign for real beauty, like you mentioned earlier, kicks off in 2004. And one reason why she knows media has been giving out the Femvertising Awards for the past few years and pr- uh, provides a lot of positive press about this kind of advertising is the fact That it works.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're, they're effective ads in that they sell a lot of whatever product they are pitching, but they're also effective in communicating and attracting the female consumer who's been so turned off by sexist ads or ads that just don't represent them visually well and also keep in mind too for women today we're very media literate we can spot a bad photoshop from a mile away right exactly especially when they like cut off an arm or something um but according to she knows media surveys from 2014 and 2016 93% 93% of their respondents said that sexually objectifying ads are damaging. Um I would like to talk to the 7% who said that sexually objectifying ads are not damaging. Just kind of be like, hey, gals, let's talk. What are you thinking? What's going on? Um They also found that 81% of the respondents claimed that pro-women ads are important for positively shaping younger generations and... Men, the way that men view women and their place in society. And 82% of the women said that they wanted to see non-airbrushed, realistic lady bodies in their advertisements. And 60% of the men they talked to agreed. And this next
0: stat is something that absolutely makes brands' ears perk up if brands do, in fact, have ears. Sure, we're personifying (laughs) them. It's fine. 51 percent, I think this was in the 2014 survey, 51 percent of respondents said that they have bought a product because of its positive portrayal of women. And I will count myself as part of the 51 Mm percent. I've absolutely gone with chosen certain brands over others because I
1: like their message because it's kind of the least they can do. (laughs) Totally. Even if they do not pursue a, quote unquote, truly feminist company culture, even if they're not supporting young girls in STEM or the arts, for instance, or setting up a, you know, a nonprofit to help kids get to college or, you know, sending products to women in underserved areas, Um the least they can do is tailor their advertising messages to not be overtly sexist or objectifying.
0: Well, and obviously, too, we're talking about more of the bigger household name brands as opposed to an independent, woman-owned, out-and-out, like, feminist kind of brand. And some of it is great to see. I mean, we post this kind of stuff on our social media all the time. One of my favorites, for instance, has been uh, Under Armour's I Will What I Want campaign featuring ballerina Misty Copeland, because the more Misty Copeland I can
1: see in my feeds, the happier I am. (laughs) Yeah, and people... Love it. Our followers love it. Just people on the internet in general, like, cannot get enough of Misty Copeland. And I think part of it is just like, oh, my God, a woman who doesn't look like every other model who's trying to sell me clothes. She's an athlete. She's a woman of color. She's powerful and strong and outspoken. And that's wonderful to see. Absolutely. She's still selling you something, but it's wonderful to see that new representation. And it's also... Notable to see how brands that you
0: would not expect at all to get in on a little bit of femvertising are also ponying up to this. So one of the 2016 She Knows Media Femvertising Award recipients is Bud Light for their Equal Pay campaign uh, featuring Amy Schumer and Seth Rogen. And I tweeted about it, I think, just on my personal Twitter about one of those, um, campaign commercials where they gave a nod to all genders and speaking like very specifically in that language. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Hey, this is cool. If Bud Light's doing this, I, I like that. That's good to see. I also know that you probably have a legacy of not, you know, advertising too well to women, but cool, especially if you're going to have people like Seth Rogen and Amy Schumer who have spoken on behalf of gender equality before. I'm glad to see it coming through, even if it's through a punchline in your ad.
1: Yeah, because I think that that makes such messages a little more palatable to a general audience that is not familiar with these conversations. Absolutely. You and I are having these conversations all the time, but the average person maybe watching a Bud Light commercial maybe isn't. Yeah. And so... Why are we complaining? Because we're feminists. <laughs> we, we,
0: we want to be victims, right? That's what the internet tells me. Exactly. That's what feminism has been selling me, JK. So whenever though, it comes to media and advertising, an ounce of skepticism is worth a pound of what? <laughs> Gain? Deodorant. Yeah. <laughs> Gain the laundry detergent. Yeah. <laughs> because from what I could find at least or couldn't find, I should say, there's no empirical proof that commercials are going to solve sexism. And here's a crucial thing. This to me is really the line that we have to consider just because a commercial makes us feel good and might make us in that moment feel a sense of empowerment. That doesn't necessarily mean that it is empowering,
1: that it is affecting this kind of change that it is portraying. No, what it does mean is that it's probably speaking to the audience that's already receptive to it. It might not necessarily be out there changing hearts and minds of people who are sexist or misogynist or what have you, racist, um, but I, as a self-identified feminist, can see like a Dove ad, for instance, and be like, oh, well, that feels better. Thank you for doing that. And I mean, Dove is saying, no, <laughs> no, we've seen a billion and a half uh, profit increase. So thank you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ever since
0: that campaign for real beauty launched to 2014, so in 10 years. They upped their revenue by $1.5 billion. And again, if, if you want a brand to pay attention, start throwing out some bees.
1: Yeah. Honeybees. Honeybees. Yes. They will terrorize you. Um, and you know, you've also got some, you know, your fave is problematic. All your faves are yeah. problematic. And that includes Dove because they are owned by Unilever who also hawks fair and lovely. The skin bleaching cream, which is not what you would call empowering.
0: Yeah. And, and this is again, something that Andy Ziesler does such a good job of dissecting. And we were feminists once because a lot of companies like Procter and Gamble, like a Unilever, et cetera, they have corporate responsibility teams. Mm-hmm. I know this because my first internship out of college, was on uh, one of these corporate PR teams where your job is to figure out what your good cause is going to be and how you're going to market that good cause to make your company look better. Mm-hmm. I'm all for corporations investing as much money as possible into these kinds of good causes, but <sighs> corporate responsibility often is is more of like um, just PR okay. rather than actual cultural change within that whole group or within you know their consumers too. It's like right. it's almost it almost feels like uh, moral licensing in a way, where you're kind of like paying a small chunk of money relative to your overall profits to help out these, you know, these people in a developing country. So that in this non-developing country
1: you can do something shadier. Like Like maybe sell
0: skin lightening cream.
1: Skin lightening cream or not give your employees any sort of paid family leave or on and on and on. Exactly. Uh, Relying on a lot of uh, contract work so you
0: don't have to pay any benefits at all. I'm not alleging that that's something that Dove does. I'm just saying that's very common among large corporations. And, of course, too, it's this false sense of feminism Mm -hmm. that a lot of people are wary of. Not in the sense of like, you know, I love the... Always maxi pad like a girl campaign. It got me, you know, teary eyed when I watched those little girls mm-hmm. loving the fact that they were girls, and that's terrific. But
1: there's more to feminism than sharing a commercial on your Facebook, and there's more to feminism than just running a rah rah yay ladies ad in a magazine. And this next this next little bullet point is something that I had. Absolutely 100% blocked out of my mind. I was reading about it and was like, Oh my God, the rage is coming back to me. So back in 2013, LUK, uh, gathered up some ad agencies, Brave, Mother, and Wyden and Kennedy. And they were like, All right, guys, we've got a mission. We are going to rebrand feminism. Because apparently, you know, the work of feminism was totally done before that, and it was totally irrelevant. So, like, let's rebrand it to make it fun again. Oh,
0: yeah. There, I mean, <laughs> of course, there was a, a lot of criticism of this initiative. But let's talk about what came out of it. So Brave made an Are You a Feminist flowchart with All Roads leading back to Yes?, Cute, it's very Tumblr friendly. Mother teamed up with The Feminist Times to produce a Sex Pistol V poster on the wage gap. And Carrie Dunn, writing about this over at FastCo, notes how this ad does not mention feminist or feminism in their copy at all. It's sort of like the sneaking in the feminist vegetables approach. And finally, you have Wyden Kennedy teaming up with The Vagenda to make a hot pink hashtag, I am a woman and poster to, in their words, sod the stereotypes. And it, it was a neat idea where they had, I'm a woman and, and you could fill in the blank with all sorts of things that you are or are not. Again, very social media friendly, but also
1: just just know. Well, yeah, because the whole point is that feminism is not a brand. It's not a trend. It's it, not a poster. It is a movement toward equal human rights for human people and for equal respect and equal opportunities. And, uh you know, the ads themselves weren't. It's not like they had any bite to them. It's not like they had a call to action beyond, you know, having you tweet something with a hashtag. Right. And I,
0: I thought it was. Interesting how Dunn noted in FASCO that L.U.K. initially vetoed Mother in Feminist Times' original concept because its message was too anti-consumerist. And then their second concept was a photo montage ad featuring a variety of vulvas aimed at making the reader think twice before getting a Brazilian wax. Not surprisingly, L. UK, which features a lot of content on pubic hair grooming, was like, "Mm, that's a little too much. So it's like, if we're going to rebrand feminism, but there's also a line to where it's like, that's too much. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound like rebranding. That sounds like, again, what was the woman-shaped box? (laughs) The coffin. (laughs) Yeah. Betty we're, Draper coffin. Yeah, we're just boxing feminism up in that. But, I mean, and, and this, the point of talking about this L example isn't to make fun of magazine initiatives, but rather just how approaching feminism as a brand is a dead end.
1: Right. Yeah, I know exactly. And the conversation continues to get more interesting and raise my eyebrow a little bit more when you think about the idea of, Someone else's definition of progress, maybe, because it seems like with, um, the femvertising awards from Sheena's Media, they're like, cool, box checked, like, let's move on past just focusing on the empowering images of women, the non-objectifying images of a variety of women, and let's talk about how great dads are in advertising. And like, I agree that it's just as bad to constantly show the dopey dad who can't figure out how to go grocery shopping or change a diaper. Like that's just as stupid of a stereotype as the mom who is chained to the kitchen sink. Um, but have we made enough progress to be like, okay, women like you're cool over there. Let's talk about all the dads fixing their daughter's hair and advertisements. And I
0: think it's part of that. It's it's that element of glossing over, which is what gives me just speaking personally. That's what gives me pause for a lot of this where, um, You know, as Samantha Skye, who's president and chief revenue officer of She Knows Media, says, you know, that in 2015, most of their fenvertising focus was, quote, on how women are represented. And we've expanded our contemplation to how all genders are represented and where the stereotypes and the negative representation exists. But it did feel like, you know, it's like, OK, well, we've. We've given some pats on the back for some positive women ads. And now let's just look at, look at all of them. I don't know. But, but again, even these femvertising awards are ultimately intended to sell things. And you could argue, well, they're selling like better advertisements, better for the consumer. I would rather have me as my 12 year old self watching these commercials than the commercials I was watching as a kid.
1: Sure. But are they selling things that are actively harming other people? Because if you sell things like fast fashion that are made in other countries by exploited children and women who don't get to leave their factories ever and have to use their tiny little baby hands to make your clothes, like, who is being empowered? Right.
0: And that was something I was thinking of this past weekend, uh when when i was watching it might have been on hulu it doesn't really matter but uh h&m has a new fall 2016 commercial campaign and it features trans models it features you know shaved heads and pit hair and women of all different body shapes to represent inclusivity in their words and that is terrific we're all about inclusivity all about representation, but the first thing I thought was exactly that Caroline was like, oh, I feel so good right now, but I don't feel good knowing that if I if I go and buy some of that fall fashion, I'm supporting the number one clothing buyer from Bangladesh factories that definitely are not empowering they're overwhelmingly female and possibly some child labor in there too manufacturing workforce of 1.6 million. yeah. But at the same time, I also cannot shirk off all of my responsibility in this whole consumerist cycle either and feel like, oh, well, H&M, blah, 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 because that exact same week that I was side eyeing that ad, which is a great I mean, again, it's a terrific commercial, but it's the whole package. And then I became even more troubled when I remembered, oh, yeah, what are you wearing right now, Kristen, while you're watching this ad? Oh, this like feministy sweatshirt from H&M that said property of no one, which I bought because it was very cheap and it did have a feminist slogan. So I'm part of the problem.
1: I mean, yeah. And that which is a whole other episode about how you are the. No, (laughs) Uh, I mean, I shop at Target. So. Right. What do I? Yeah, exactly. Um, And this all ties in all of this feel good advertising that kind of disguises a murky undertow uh comes into play also when you have these big corporate feminist lady power conferences um that aren't necessarily actually helping the Bangladeshi garment worker or really just your average woman on the street here in the United States. Um, but they are doing a lot to bring po- a lot of powerful women together to network.
0: I think, yeah, those conferences, which we have been to, mm-hmm. we did an entire series focused around the Makers Conference. And I can tell you those women individually are terrific and they are very committed To feminism and believe very much in it. But I will say that a lot of those conferences are about as effective as my H&M property of no one sweatshirt, Mm -hmm. where it's a good conversation starter, but I'm not changing the world by wearing it.
1: Right. Like, are you inviting and you, I mean, the general you at a conference, like, are you inviting underprivileged girls from, you know, schools, middle schools, high schools to participate and meet powerful women and be inspired? Are you taking all of those empowering conversations about the wage gap or salary negotiation back to your actual job and putting that into practice? Or, you know, if we're talking about where a lot of these conferences are held, which are very
0: Fancy schmancy resorts. What about all the people who are working at those resorts? What about all the people who are serving the food at these like fancy dinners that we have been to and making the food? It's like those the, the that's where arguably like the societal change is happening. Yes, it's important that these conversations are happening at the top. But can you call it empowering if it doesn't trickle down? To everyone else, if it still just concentrates power at the top, what does empowerment even mean at that point? Right. Because at that point, empowerment is just an emotion.
1: Yeah. It's like how good you feel after you eat a good lunch. Right. It's like feeling full. You just had a good sandwich, a good feminist
0: sandwich. But I am really fascinated, especially by. The conference arm of this and femvertising in general, because to me as a digital media nerd, um, native advertising is the new name of the game where it's ads that don't look like ads it's sponsored content it's things you know where it, it doesn't feel like a commercial you're actually learning something oh it just happens to be brought to you by johnson and johnson and these kinds of conferences feel like native empowering, where it's like we're bringing you this you know this this rundown of all these inspiring speakers who are going to you know, engage your feminism and work and help you balance your life with your 24-7 job, et cetera. And it just happens to be brought to you by XYZ. Yeah,
1: and again, I mean, and I think that there's the positives and the negatives. You know, if you have uh, an extended ad, like uh, I think it's Ariel, they make detergent, clothing detergent. And they had this whole ad in India about getting the men to help with the laundry because the women were doing all of the housework. Men never touched the laundry and so they're like, you know, what can we do to help sort of even the score here? And, and it launched a great conversation. It got people talking, you know, and yes, it was total viral hashtag activism kind of stuff, but it spawned a great conversation, but it's still advertising and they want you to buy their product and they want you to feel good about their product. So, It's kind of, you know, it's that endless cycle.
0: And to bring it full circle, the the place where I at least first saw that laundry detergent ad was presented by Sheryl Sandberg at a maker's conference. Yes, ma'am. So you and I are kind of sitting here then almost almost right at right in the middle of this whole femvertizing ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I mean, we sell products On this podcast as well. We sell feminist stamps from stamps.com, don't you know? Um, So on a lot of different levels, this is something, you know, that is important to me Mm -hmm. as a feminist media maker um, to make sure that what I'm selling does match up with the content that I'm kind of selling in a way, you know, Mm -hmm. the information I'm presenting and also the kind of example that I want to set for other people. And then it's a question of reconciling all of these different moving parts with one another. And it's challenging.
1: It is challenging because, you know, we live in a capitalist society that tells us to be good consumers. You know, some people are addicted to drugs and alcohol. Some people are shopping addicts, like legitimately. And... You know, I I think that the best we can hope to do is continue to vote with our wallets, vote with our money and put try to put our money where our mouths are and hold companies accountable, Um, because obviously, as we've just talked about for the last hour, advertisers listen when you boycott their products.
0: But I and I and I think, too, that it's remembering that media literacy goes beyond liking or not liking an individual commercial. Mm mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into n- knowing how your, my, I'll personalize this, how my stick of Dove deodorant, which I do use because I like how it smells. It empowers my underarms <laughs> to negotiate for raises, <laughs> but how that stick of deodorant that I'm using relates to people on the other side of the world. Yeah. And we asked Andy Ziesler about this when we talked to her a few months back of just like, what do you do? You know, and she didn't really have a tidy answer for it. I mean, obviously there's to go to like support your local artisans and your local, you know, independent sellers and goods and things like that. And I'm just going to add that there is, I don't think there's any, any such thing as living like a perfect feminist life. But I think that if you, have the money to be able to choose mm-hmm. what you buy, because this is also a privileged conversation to have. I'm saying this about an hour too late. Um, If you have the money to be able to make these consumer choices, I think that it is our responsibility to make them wisely. If we truly believe that empowerment is something that in a way can be bought. Yeah. So listeners help us sort this out because it's tricky. and. We want to know what you think about it. MomStuff at com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuff Podcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break in which we'll sell you something.
1: All right. Hello. I have a letter here from Ingrid in response to our pantsuit episode. Uh, she says it was really interesting to hear the history of the evolution of women wearing pants. It's so easy to forget sometimes all the small things other women had to fight daily for us to get where we are today. It actually gave me some flashbacks to the small private Christian college I attended. All the way back yonder in 1997, I was a freshman at a school of about 550 students. I remember the first week of school, our dorm mother had a meeting with us about a dress code. She told us that even though the administration had decided women could now wear jeans, guys could always wear them, women could not until 1993, she did not think women wearing pants was acceptable, particularly brown pants. Why brown? She wouldn't say, but they were apparently the most lust-inducing of pant colors. She could not force us to stop wearing jeans or the sinful brown pants. But she, along with the rest of the administration, still policed our clothing to a degree I have never before or since experienced. Shorts and skirts could be no more than an inch above the knee, and they would use rulers to measure and send you back to change if they were too short. I remember one of the bigger scandals a few months in was when we had a special meeting to talk about button-down shirts. We almost lost the privilege of wearing them because the men on campus had complained that the shirts we were wearing were too tight and would sometimes gap a little and they could see bras, which of course caused them to lust, which was our fault. That is two hours of my life I will never get back. Honestly, I could go on for days about the dress code and double standards at that school. All I can say is I pieced out of there and haven't regretted it at all. It was exhausting, constantly worrying about other people's problems with my clothes. At any rate, thanks for continuing to bring us such an interesting and insightful podcast. Keep up the great work and you do the same, Ingrid. Thank you. So I have
0: a letter here from Maggie about our pent Suit power dressing episode. And Maggie writes, I'm a lawyer in Ontario, Canada, a mother of two and a fat woman. I think something really not touched on in the episode was the fat phobic way in which fat professional women and men are treated in relation to dress. I just returned from my maternity leave of my second child. In prep for the return, I wasn't brushing up on the law, which is, you know, my job. I was worried about the extra weight and the fact that nothing I owned fit. Shopping for fat women could be an episode in and of itself. Regardless, the clothes I can find that fit and I feel comfortable in are truly not traditionally professional. My experience being a fat woman in a professional career is the constant feeling of being sloppy, frumpy, unkempt, and unprofessional. I already have trouble being taken seriously as a young woman, but on top of that, I'm fat, which is often read as being lazy, not hardworking, not knowledgeable, and generally not really caring about myself. I feel the eyes of my colleagues and co-workers judging my appearance, but even more so of my clients and of opposing counsel, who certainly don't look at me as tough or qualified, which I attribute to the combination of being fat, young, and a woman. I believe this issue is doubly or triply problematic for women of color and women of poverty who can't afford an incredibly expensive custom wardrobe to fit a fat body and appear, quote unquote, professional. And aside from the fat issues, I think the episode would have benefited from a discussion of Muslim women in professional careers who wear a hijab, niqab or burqa. And the perception that the same is not professional attire, which has been an issue dealt with directly in Canada when a judge commented on a female lawyer's hijab, indicating she was not suitably dressed and refused to hear her case unless she removed it. I'll stop rambling, but thanks again and looking forward to much more. And Maggie, that was not rambling at all. You raised incredibly important points. And this is something, too, I have a feeling a lot of other listeners can chime in on. So if you also have thoughts on being a fat woman shopping for professional clothes... Let us know what you think, and also Muslim women in the workplace and wardrobe issues around that. Let's keep these conversations going. Mom stuff at howstuffworks.com is where you can email us, and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about empowering. Head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com.